Welcome to the Teaching That Counts podcast. Uh, as always, I'm your host, Abel Maestas. I'm an instructional coach here in Ceres Unified School District. Today, we are talking about the Building Thinking Classrooms book, and we are looking at chapters 12 and 13. So once again, I have a great group of teachers with me to talk about and go deep dive into these chapters. I'll let them introduce themselves. Sarah Mucha, Central Valley High School. Grant McCormick, also Central Valley High School. Diana Andrade, Argus High School. Tucker Schwarberg, Series High School. Elvis Delgado, Series High School. All right, thanks a lot, everyone, for joining me today. Let's go and dive right into Chapter 12. Um, I know we've been really looking forward to some of these chapters here, especially Chapter 12 and 13, where we talk about evaluation and what we evaluate in a thinking classroom. So I'll go and get us started on this. We're really looking, chapter 12 really resonated with me because we are looking at competencies. And when we talk competencies in math, we're really talking math practices. And so this chapter really focuses on how do we evaluate the students in terms of the math practices? Like that's something that we should value because... You know, when he talked about here, what are three things that appear every time? Perseverance, willingness to take risks, and ability to collaborate. But how do we evaluate those things, right? For years, mathematics, we would just like give a test (laughs) and we're just looking at content. But we know that we really want students to be able to, especially in a thinking classroom, be problem solvers, be persevere through problems and really hit all of those math practices that we are um, trying to get students those standards for math practice trying to get students to do. So I found this chapter to be great in terms of focusing on those math practices, but I also really got a lot about his rubric style and uh, the things about rubrics. So I'll open it up to some discussion about some things that stuck out to you in this particular chapter. Um, I really liked how he simplified the rubrics to where it was easy to use, easy to read, easy to interpret. I really, I really liked and uh, identified with the reduction of the number of columns. Um, for for years, we've looked at rubrics and it's like a four point scale or a five point scale. And when I'm constructing these rubrics as a teacher, it's like pulling my own teeth trying to delineate between. Um, you know, almost meeting standard and meeting standard like that, that two and that three, like he preaches having either two columns or three columns, um, you know, kind of almost like a Likert scale. And that really, really uh, made it for me in my mind, simple to communicate, okay, what, it, what do I want students to be able to, to do or, or to um, exhibit? And then you know, what's kind of what's the the opposite of that. Um, I also like, too, how he had the arrow at the top. So, um, you know, rather than putting labels, it's like just on a continuum. Where are you right now? Where do we want to push you? And then obviously showing the direction that you you want the students um, to go. Those were kind of my, my key t- uh, takeaways from, from this chapter, and I, I really, really uh, appreciate it. Yeah, when you mentioned the arrows, it... it... It gets to, he said, in the interviews with students that it revealed many of them were seeing the headings in the initial rubric as descriptions of who they are rather than where they are. And it was especially true for kids that had fixed mindsets. If they were fixed mindset, they often took those headings and thought, oh, that's a that's a description of who I am, not 
where I am in learning. And so that was different for kids with growth mindset. So I, I found that fascinating that the words that we use really matter on the rubric. So I liked how um, when he was describing the problem, he talked about we really need to focus on what we choose to evaluate tells the students what we value. And so I thought that that was really powerful. The other thing was the traditional rubric. When I saw the picture of it, I got really overwhelmed, but it also kind of reminded me of the framework that we have, (laughs) which isn't a diss on series. I just, sometimes it's a lot of writing to take in. And I, I appreciated his version of a rubric was less words, but like, Tucker was saying the arrow at the top because it only shows the the two ends of the spectrum and then having the students highlight this middle piece where there aren't necessarily words to gauge where they are. I thought that that was an interesting take on the rubrics. Do you remember our writing rubrics? Do you remember those? Yeah, I hated those. <laughs> so no. I didn't like those There was at all. so much stuff on there and I, it reminds me of in the book where he talks about that he gave teachers um, the rubrics all like taken apart and asked them to put it back together on where it goes. And they were all different. Like nobody knew where things were supposed to go because there was too much stuff and it was unclear. And it reminded me of that, that writing rubric. No, whoever, if the district officials that are listening to this, I'm sorry about <laughs> making comments about the writing rubric. Um, I think what, really resonated with me when I was reading through this is it really connected to our work with uh, Michael McDowell and Hinge that we're doing at Argus. I'm not sure if any of the other sites have got there yet, but he actually visited our site on Tuesday. So I was able to share some of what I read here with him and how it tied into the co-creation of that criteria. So I think that's really where you get the bang, uh, your bang for Uh, Your buck is letting students define what is good behavior. What is is it that you're looking for, right? What is that ultimate outcome? And then what is the opposite of that? And it can be as easy as the T-chart as he shows, um, you know, on, which page is that at? I just had it. Uh, Just a fast T-chart that the students created on page 220, right? This is uh, good behavior, these are things or are, are good examples of collaboration, if that's what you're measuring, and then, or perseverance, whatever that is, and then this is the opposite of that, right? Not so good. So I actually had a conversation with him and my administrator uh, regarding this chapter, and and it was uh, really good to think about, and I told him I was going to be bringing it back to this group, because if we are evaluating what we value, how does that, or does it, end up in their grade somehow. Hmm. So I just kind of wanted to bring that to this group for us to think about, you know, does that end up in their grade? If, you know, if we value it, how do we? Yeah. And I guess that some, (laughs) yeah, some of that comes back to that. The fact that those standards for math practices are standards. So we could evaluate kids on the standards for math practice because those are standards that they should be doing. Um, they're, they're a little bit different, right? They're not content. So we have to come up with some way to evaluate them. And I like how one thing, so I, I like the rubric. I like how it had two columns in the column in the middle open up. So that way students can kind of highlight where they are. 
And I like the co-construction. Students can really, I mean, they know what is, is and isn't, right? And I think this could be used, I think I was actually working with a team on using this same idea with the CASP and the ICA work that we've done. The ICA gives you the, um, uh, in the report that the students get, it gives you the claims. It gives you in the three claims and how the students did in the three claims. And if you read the claims, students can understand what it means to be a problem solver and what it means not to be a problem solver. So you can easily make one of these rubrics with students on each of the claims, and then students can see where they are at in a claim in during class. And so that's one way to kind of bring in the CASP idea with these rubrics, because really those claims, with the exception of the concepts and procedures, the other two really are the competencies, right? And so we want to get those kids there. Can you grade them? I think you can, but you need to be clear on what that is and how that relates to the standards for math, mathematical practice. Because you don't want it to be participation points, right? Like, we want to stay away from that. Um, does he mention grading in this? I think in one of the FAQs, he does say something about. Yeah, on page 223, uh, 2 and 223, um, at, the, at the end of the answer, he says that statement about numbers and letters go in your grade book, not on the rubric. And that's what I enjoyed most about the rubrics, was particularly with our work with proficiency scales in the district. And, you know, standards-based teaching and standards-based grading and what's the distinction between that there, there obviously is a connection but right now I'm just trying to make sure I do the work to learn them separately I guess <laughs> at, at least at first and when students see grades and they're, they're, they think about that what you was said earlier about who they are and not where they're at and that's I think that removing that is a big part of um, seeing them as where they're at on a spectrum and not who they are yeah I just used a proficiency scale with a set of students um, this week. And I, as I was getting ready and preparing for that lesson, I decided to take those numbers off of the proficiency scale. I took the numbers off and just left the words that were on there. And that was really because I read this and I thought, I need to take these numbers off. So I see what you're, you're saying. It's on 223. Our research clearly showed, and I had this highlighted, that if you put a number or a letter on a rubric, then the students ignore all other aspects of the feedback that the rubric affords. Uh, let me go ahead and jump in. Uh, as my colleague Sarah was mentioning, uh, talking about the problem, right? Were our students willing to persevere, um, take risks, and collaborate? I was just thinking how close this actually hit home here at Sirius High School, just because we've been talking about this at Guided Coalition, which we've been talking about what a good learner is here. And we were trying to figure out, hey, we want to implement these rules for students to, to be a good learner, you know, asking questions, is confident in where they are going, can make connections about how their daily lessons connect with other things, can advocate for where their needs are or, and use tools around them. And I'm like, we're trying to advocate all these things for students, but we're not giving them a grade. And I was like, this is exactly what we need. We need to let students know that we are going to grade them on these things, and it's going to be all levels, not just one teacher's doing it in one class and no one else is doing it. We, we need to go all, all in on this. Um, so it really jumped into the idea of creating this rubric, and I really like the idea of the rubrics just being simple. And I was thinking uh, five-week five rubric, 
typically Monday through Friday. And then if students showing perseverance, if they're taking risks, uh, are they collaborating? And it's like, we could just highlight those things for them or they can highlight them for themselves. And that's every classroom where they can see that. And it's like, how cool would that be where the whole school is doing this? And students say, I'm learning because I'm doing these things. Right, because the characteristics that we're, we're being asked to evaluate in our in our math classroom is going to be the same throughout all the classes, not just math classrooms. I also like that um, he basically said that the total time you spend on co-creating, presenting, and using the rubric is less than 15 minutes, which I'm like, uh, this year, I feel like since I've been reading the book, I've been running out of time, so I don't know if 15 minutes is exactly how long it would take me, but I would hope that that's the amount of time. I could see myself doing this at the beginning of the school year, and then, you know, how he says you're only evaluating three groups that period. So that's the only thing that I feel like, okay, we're doing these random groups, and then it's like to keep track of which kids, and if you're rotating to random groups multiple times, how do you track that? I feel like the tracking part would be hard if you are rotating multiple times in a period. But I do like I do like the rubrics and I and I could see implementing them. I like how he says, um, you know, if you notice that the kids are kind of slacking in perseverance, pull that rubric out and tape it to their vertical whiteboard. Like, okay, so that's what made me think the beginning of the school year would be a good idea because then you would stockpile here are these three or four rubrics, whatever. These are the ones I'm gonna focus on for this semester and you know, make sure that the kids got it. Yeah. Going back to that, I actually jumped into that with my students. Uh, they had an assessment and they had a bonus question, which was what makes a good student? And so they had to write me a complete paragraph on makes a good student. And just the responses from them was amazing. Just they, they know what a good student is and they're willing to do it. But I don't think they know it since we are not grading that. They're not willing to put that effort into it. So. Well, we're not holding them accountable. Accountable for it. You're it's right. the accountability So part. right now, my whiteboards are all what makes a good student, and there's keywords, there's census friends everywhere. So when we come back on Monday, we're going to roll out the idea of good student and how can we create a rubric using their ideas, and then we're going to use that as we continue yeah, the semester. Yeah, co- co-construct that, that rubric, yeah. and then when they're not doing what they said they were going to do, you post it up. Hey, I, I know I see that you, you, you struggled here yesterday. Where can you go today to, to be that student that we talked about? So does that mean that each period has a different rubric? Because that's the part that I'm like, mm. we have different periods and different periods have different personalities. They have different traits. So I'm just wondering, are these rubrics going to be different for each class? Hmm. That's a great question. Uh, right now, what I'm thinking of doing is I'm going to have my students kind of circle the top three for that class period and I can label them periods one, two, and periods one, technically. And then if my third period class agrees on it, then we'll circle the same three. But I'm trying to use the same or trying to direct them into like, let's just use three. So we can have the same rubric and understand that that's the idea. Yeah, I think using, you know, teacher tool like that, right? Seeing if you can use the same one for multiple classes, just sharing it with the other class. Or I think directing them to a little bit of direction on where I think he talked about this too. If like they miss something, you can kind of fill that in, especially if you're framing these around the standards for math practice. I think you can you're going to end up with some similarities when you're really talking about, you know, persevering in problem solving. Right. Standard math. Uh, I believe that's math practice one or um 
you know, pro, what was the other modeling with mathematics, right? So if we're modeling with mathematics, they're right in front of me. <laughs> yeah. Move your head, Tucker. Um, so if we're modeling with mathematics in, in uh, math practice four, what does that look like when I'm doing that in class on a day-to-day -day basis? And then when we're actually doing those tasks on the boards, you might tell them, look, today we're looking at this one. And this is what you should be doing for math practice four. That's the one we're working on today, aside from the content. Yeah, and when um, I, in my capacity as an intervention teacher, I've also helped another teacher with that who uh, teaches juniors, and um, they're getting ready for state testing. Um, they're doing a little bit of that and looking at their score reports from previous years. And uh, in the problem-solving uh, rubric was what uh, she decided to use that day. And some of the language that came up um, in the bad indicators was making mistakes and then she's like oh is that is that a bad thing and i think you know part of reshaping kids to be in a growth mindset could be uh helping them to see that some of those things that they are afraid of um trying are actually good things in that in that practice wow that's powerful man um because we don't know that until we ask the kids yeah thanks for sharing that uh, anything else in this chapter? You know, like I said, I, I, the other thing that I felt was really super powerful was um, I wrote a sentence here. Oh, at the very end in the last FAQ, he says, all assessments, and I think we're going to go into that in the next chapter here, all assessment and evaluation should be for learning and some of it will be of learning. And I just I felt that was powerful as he goes into the next piece and looking at, at content. This chapter really focused on the, the competencies. Another person asked, like, okay, well, how does this help me with attainment of content? It doesn't. Like this is straightforward. This chapter is about how do we get students doing the things we want them to do um, rather than looking at the math itself. So let's talk about chapter 13. 13 is how we use formative assessment in the thinking classroom. He points out in the very beginning the difference between formative and summative. You, know, you focus on summative assessments in chapter four, so we'll get to that. This chapter really focuses on formative. How do we gather information from kids? And this is really content-based. The first thing I highlighted was on page 232. Uh, when a student completes a test or a quiz and the teacher grades it, how that student performed informs the teacher of what they need to work on with that student. He goes on to talk about, but he says, in either case, the teacher can then use the information to inform their teaching and the student can use it to inform their learning. But a lot of times what happens is the students don't really get the information and they don't know how to use it to inform their learning. So I think that's what the, the big kind of theme of this chapter was. And I think we're going to talk about this. But it really hits to what we're doing in uh, Series Unified with Proficiency Scales. Like this was the Proficiency Scale chapter. So what are you guys' thoughts? I think the big picture that I saw was a good amount of students don't see the unit as subtopics. They see it as one big thing. Um, and so that also made me think of like success criteria and your learning targets and your learning intentions. So that's what I pulled away from this chapter was that, you know, some kids aren't seeing it as subunits, but I think that if you have the learning targets mapped out for them, it, it gives a bigger picture of these are all the little things that make this big unit. 
I really liked, again, just the structure of the rubric here um, for these. And I, I also, just like Sarah, kind of identified them as learning targets or the success criteria of the unit. And <clears throat> my team had created something similar in the three columns uh, outlined on the front of, of the unit that just says, I can never do this. I can sometimes do this and I can always do this. And students would just interact with that at the, at the end of the lesson. The challenge for me was changing that and incorporating that at the end of every lesson, making sure that students are reflecting, can you do this? Or when we get to like a, a unit review, that they're reflecting back on those learning targets and, and analyzing, okay, where do I need to continue my learning? Where am I still working? Um, things like that um on his oh what is he calling these Tools. yeah the navigating the navigating tool I think yeah so instruments yeah instruments for navigating instruments yeah. for navigating he has three columns which i like the three theme that we have going but it's like basic intermediate and advanced so that's pulling on the the proficiency scales that we have in series unified but it was interesting because the one on figure 13.3 has you know, the, um, the problem numbers from a unit review. And I thought that that was really interesting. However, I remember having a release day with you, Abel, and we talked about not having like a traditional review for classes. Like we're used to sometimes giving a review that looks exactly like the test. And then, so that's what I thought when I was reading this and I'm just like, well, how (laughs) do I pull away from doing a traditional review, but still incorporating this instrument of navigating you know yeah and i think that you could kind of marry this with some of the um check your understanding questions throughout the unit rather than having it necessarily be at the end of the unit although i i there needs to you know there needs to be a balance right we could still do check your understanding questions at the end of a uh cycle of learning right we want the kids to be able to do we called we call them practice problems in the past we want them to to get that you know consolidate from the bottom then debrief and and formalize that mathematics but they also have to practice the mathematics and at the end of a unit practicing those mathematical skills doing some thinking problems is good but they shouldn't necessarily match the test necessarily because then all they're doing is mimicking what they did the day before, right? right. So I, I can see that. I also thought about that. And I, I did think, well, how could this work? Ne- not necessarily on a day-to-day basis, but with check your understanding problems. Like I can go back and say, look, these are the check your understanding problems that were basic, intermediate, and advanced for this subtopic. Yeah, I guess I was just having a hard time with the timeline. Like when do you give students this... Um, why am I having a hard time with this word? The navigation instrument. <laughs> when do you give the students this navigation instrument? And then when do you have them make these marks on here? So like on figure 13.6, he has this key of what each of the the symbols mean. And so if if students have attempted the, the problem and answered correctly, they put a check. If they, you know, have um, a silly mistake, they put an S and H stands for attempting, but you got help. G was, uh, you did it with a group, so collaborative work. X was attempted and it was wrong. N is not 
attempted at all. Like you left it blank. So I guess I'm like, when does a student go through and reflect on this and, and notice that some of these have multiple marks, like they tried them multiple times. So I guess maybe it it does go back to those check for understanding questions and it's all on the student. Like you don't give them time in class to do that because I I don't know. Yeah, he did say that this was like this check here was the student students nuanced records of how they performed on each question and it wasn't necessarily a reflection it was a how they performed right um which he talks i believe he talks about in this is a different between like a self-reflection and a actual like giving themselves feedback on where they are on these types of problems I also like that he does talk about um, what do you do with those students that have learning plans, 504 plans, and he says, you know, to use the navigation instrument to help cut through all the noise and and really have them focus on maybe like the more basic to intermediate questions to see what their achievable level is. Mm-hmm. I thought that that was um, a nice way to address that. You know, we, we have a lot of kids that struggle. Um, but they also struggle motivationally. They struggle with other things. And he does mention, you know, we've done a lot, of, a lot of pushing in this district about having the students know where they are in their learning, where they need to go to be successful, right, um, and what they need to be able to do to get there. We say that all the time. And I wrote this, underline this. He says, another group on whom this navigation instrument was having very little impact were students who didn't appear to care about either the learning or the grade. Some of these students were performing at a lower end of the respective classes. For these students, information about where they are and where they are going wasn't helping them to move forward. So that's not a silver bullet. There's a lot of other things that go into uh, getting these kids to, to be successful. And I know I was thinking of Diana when I was reading this because you work with a lot of students that have come from that place where there was low low motivation. And this isn't really, like, this is in and of itself isn't going to help them. But I know that you put a lot of effort and time into motivating the kids in different ways. Exactly. I read this a couple of times as well when I went through this uh, chapter. But I I want to start with the, the 10 to 20% that it said it didn't have an, an effect on because – they already saw those subtopics. So I thought that was interesting, right? That the, the uh, 10 to 20% of the students that already understood it and the rubric didn't matter, right? Then they said the 50 to 70% of the students that they saw drastic improvement in. And then the other group, April, were the ones that you were just mentioning, right? The ones that didn't uh, care, mm-hmm. uh, appear to care about their learning or their grade. And then... He also mentions another group. It's not that they didn't care, but they thought, well, I got a B. That's good enough. Why should I go and do all this extra work? Right? I'm happy with my B. My mom's happy with the B. And he said, you know, technically you can't argue with that. <laughs> right? If that's where <laughs> right. they, if they're happy yeah. and they're content there, then, then that's, you know, that's okay. You know, good enough, in quotes, as he says. So, yeah, it definitely is not you know, a magic bullet, but I think you have to, you know, um, you have to try to hit as many of those kids at, at those moments that you can, Yeah. you know, and some, for some students, if they see content and they're like, Hey, you know what? I think I get this. 
and you know then there might be another area of content that they're like they can't you know they they have a difficult time at, at accessing it um, you know so you really have to capture what works for the student I think and um, you know like you said try to do a lot of motivation I do like the open up uh, self-assessments that they have I didn't look at them to see exactly how they matched up. I know they don't have specific examples, but I know that they're very clear. Like I, you know, with my success criteria, I, um, I don't feel like I'm there yet. I don't, I think there's three levels, isn't there? I was looking around for a book if I could grab one, but yeah. And, and I do try to use those with the kids and especially now that I have the, um, the proficiency scales. Proficiency scales. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. The proficiency scales. That I think I've been using more with this, with my students. Mm -hmm. So like you know, this is where we are, and and I, I I'm tending to lean more towards that. But I'm looking at this like, how can we incorporate some of those examples into those a little bit more? Yeah. From our content. Thank you for that. So I want to um, highlight a couple of things here that I, I wouldn't say are a passion of mine, but I found very interesting that I think that if we can, we can talk about. So the first is that um, the labels, we talked a little bit about the labels in the rubric, and he talks here about the way that we use the words in, in, our, in our labels here. He uses basic, intermediate, and advanced, but he does talk about how we want to focus the words on the tasks, not on the students' abilities. And that the marks that they make, the check, the S, the H, and the X, and the N, those are their being able to say where I am at with this type of level of task. And so thinking about the tasks that we do and labeling those as basic, intermediate, advanced. I think when we went to NCTM, we did what, chili peppers or hot spice? It was Taco Bell. Taco Bell uh, um, hot sauce, right? What were they labeled? Mild, uh, hot, hot, and fire, right? And so students can connect to that really easily. Hot, mild, or mild, hot, and fire. So that was one thing I thought I was thinking about. Here's the other thing that I worked with a lot of 12th graders over my career. Gosh, there were three things I really want to talk about. I worked with a lot of 12th graders over my career, and he mentions in one of the FAQs about how we give the students the list of the subtopics, but at some time they need to be able to see the unit as a, as a unit of subtopics because that's what they're going to need in college. Um, that's what prepares them for making those, those uh, connections in post-secondary education. And he talked about that in 245. So that was something that was really, I think, really important to me. And the last thing, which really is where I want to talk to you guys about, we do a lot of things in this district with learning intentions and success criteria. And he talks in this FAQ on page 246. The question that he gets is, in my jurisdiction, we have been told that we should be stating the learning goal or outcome for that lesson at the beginning of the lesson. Doesn't that take care of helping students to see the unit as st study as a collection of subtopics? He says, in theory, yes. In reality, it doesn't. And he goes on, and this is the most important piece I thought here. He says, until your students get to experience the mathematics and see how the different tasks in this subtopic are connected, 
and are different from the other tasks, these kind of statements aren't going to mean much. Names of concepts should come after experiences with concepts. This is in part why consolidation from the bottom is so effective. And he gave you an example. It's like, oh, next chapter you're going to blah, 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 blah. And it's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But when you experience that. You don't know what a data then, gathering paradigm is. Yeah, no, I don't know what a data gathering <laughs> paradigm is. He says that. So for he says, in 10th grade student, today we are learning how to factor trinomials where the leading coefficient is not one. Makes as much sense as me saying in the next chapter we're doing data things. So, you know, we've I think we've been doing it for a long time. Here's our learning intention and here's our success criteria at the very beginning. And to them, it's like, like, I don't know what you're talking about. But if we consolidate from the bottom and then say today we were to you were supposed to be learning to do this and this is how you know you're successful. Were you there? I, I for years I was always like, I don't want to give away the like I don't want to give away the car trick. I want students to get an experience and then it comes like look at the math we did. So I felt a little bit validated with this. Uh I know that's a little bit against what a lot of we've been taught we've been doing in this district. So I just want your thoughts on on that. Um and please don't get me in trouble. Any of you that are listening out there that are admin? My um, work with students this year with developing success criteria, I exactly felt that same way. Like, how can I expect the students to know what the success criteria looks like or is if we haven't even we haven't even done this, right? So what I did was probably about midway through the term, then I had them go back and look to see, like, okay, what have we covered? And what does that, what does success look like? Or maybe give them assessment questions uh, or um, questions that, you know, were going to be appearing on their test uh, and have them look at it and say, okay, well, yeah, we've done this and this is what I need to do. And we haven't done this yet. And so that I think helped because it made more sense instead of me just giving the test or um, the assessment and having them look to see what the success criteria would be and come up with that, there would be no way that they could create that on their own. So that's something I've um, already put into practice. Wow, cool. Thanks for sharing that. And so I think I think more too, it's more of an and answer rather than an or. I think it kind of just depends upon what the lesson, what the topic is. Like there are some you know, inquisitive based lesson that you really don't want to give away the the card trick. Um, and then there's some that are just very much, very straightforward. Okay. This is what we're learning today, especially if they do have that background knowledge or, you know, experience, then, then you can put, the, you can lay it out there. So you have that clarity for them. And then two, a success criteria. Yes. Some of it, like I'm going over it. It doesn't make any sense. Um, and so I do that briefly at the beginning of the lesson, but then I always try to go back during the lesson. Okay, this is the first, you know, your first step. You want to be able to accomplish this in order to reach the next stage. So I, I think all of it, right, is just another tool in the tool belt and you, yeah. you figure out when, when you're going to utilize that tool and how. Yeah, I did something Michael McDowell did where uh, he didn't show the learning, like I didn't show the learning intention and success criteria until after we had a task problem up there, and I asked the students, what do you think we're learning about today based on what we have? And they thought, well, maybe we're learning this, maybe we're learning that, maybe we're learning this. Okay, great. Let me show you what we're learning here. Here's a learning to success criteria. So they had a chance to at least look at the task, make some connections of what they thought they were going to be learning, 
And then most of them were right. That is exactly what we're learning. And then we get into the main task. And that worked out really well for the students to make that connection. But I didn't show them, I, like, I didn't tell them what we were learning first. I let them kind of think about that first. And Michael McDowell did that. And I, I thought that was pretty. By the way, Michael McDowell is, uh, he is, I don't, I think he still teaches math, but he, he has a math background. That was what he was originally teaching. Yeah. I want to add to that. I, hopefully I don't get in trouble for saying this, but <laughs> see what happens. Um, it's a safe space that's public. I appreciate Elvis. it. Appreciate it. <laughs> thousands um, and thousands of people will be listening to this podcast. Hopefully. Uh, I know we have our learning intentions success criteria, and I think it's, it's awesome that students get to see at what they're learning, right? They get to understand, like, I'm walking in and, hey, today I'm going to be learning about systems of the equation, and I got to be able to do this, this, and this. But I have this so many times I said this to my students and half the class is listening. They're on their cell phones. They're like, well, what's the point of this? He's going to go over it. I'm going to learn after he says it. So I kind of started modifying my my approach to this. And so, you know, I talked about it last time. I'm using Cornell notes with my students now. So we are, my extra ticket is actually two or three questions where they write on the side. So, for example, it would be, what is the system of equations? And then they have to show me a problem of what the system of equations would be. Draw me a system of inequalities, and then they'll have to show on their notes, like going back to what we did on our workbooks, go ahead and write that. And that is where they learn, and then they summarize, and that's where we end. But it goes back to the learning intentions to like, this is where I learned, yes. Instead of them having to really process, and being in class, I have no idea what we're going to do, but now I know what we, I just accomplished. Yeah, by no means are we saying to not put up the learning intention success yeah. criteria. It's just finding the right time that is um strategic right it might not be at the very beginning it might be it might be after a first task or it might be in the middle or in the end it really depends on the situation that and the task and the mathematics that we're doing i think that's what we're trying to say here there have been a couple of times where i've been intentionally vague in the success criteria and, and that might not sound great but um going back to what we were saying about the rubrics and the math practices okay, I'll be successful today by making sense of problems and persevering and solving them. And then when the time's right, because I am trying not to give away the card trick, as you said, mm -hmm. go change the success criteria later, um, but just give them that to start with so they see, okay, we're tapping into to this practice and maybe the content reveals itself a bit later. Yeah, and I think it just goes back to that consolidating from the bottom, right? We're using what the students come in with to build their, their mathematics up and so I love that idea. You know, it reminds me, Elvis, what you talked about here, that very last, one of these last FIQ, FAQs I thought was so cool. He says at the end of, how do, like, how can we know that I'm doing a good job helping my students know where they are and where they're going? He says, at the end of the unit study, ask your students to make a review test on which they'll get 100%. So make a review test that you know you'd get 100%. And then make one that you know you'd get 50 They'll know where they are, right? That's great. That is <laughs> they'll great. know exactly where they are if they can do that. So, um, and they'll know what they don't know if they know the problems that they're going to get 50% on. I thought that was such a cool idea. And I think that's like a neat way to do a review. Yeah, that is cool. I highlighted that just now as you uh, were reiterating that because that is uh, that is interesting. Take, I've never done that. I've had yeah. them create a review, but I've never posed it in that way, right? That yeah. you get 100% on. One of the things that I do also is at the end of um, the class period, 
I'm like, okay, guys, you know, this is was our learning intention today. And then I will randomly select some students. I have tend to have smaller classes. So sometimes I let everybody share something that they learned or something maybe that they still have a question about. or So I do try to kind of wrap it up that way and maybe touch base and make them think about, okay, this is what we were supposed to be doing today. What did I learn or what did I do to help me get there? So with the the part of this where he says names of concepts should come after experiences with concepts, it reminded me of the experience first, formalized later. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm just wondering and curious from an admin perspective how they would feel about this learning intention not being there right at the start of class. <laughs> because um, – so if they want to phone in, no, I'm just yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, we need to do this live, right? We need to do it with with a phone number. Yep. Because I feel like we have a site visit coming up. People are going to be looking for that learning learning goal, your objective, your success criteria, and like if it's not on the board or if it's not on every slide, like they're going to say something in the the wrap up, you know. So I'm just wondering. I, I do feel like sometimes the success criteria does give away things. So I have in the past done what Grant said, where you use your math practices as a success criteria, but I do what Tucker does. I say it in the beginning, knowing that they're not really going to know what's, what this is. And then I try to bring it back after they've done a couple problems. I just like, for instance, today, my students had to derive the equation of a circle and my success criteria was that they were going to use Pythagorean theorem to derive it. So then it's like we talked about, okay, what do we remember about Pythagorean theorem? So I tried to like explain the success criteria a little bit. And then I had some building blocks of like set up um, these triangles using use the Pythagorean theorem to this. Sorry, use the picture of this right triangle to set up the Pythagorean theorem. And then I, you know, transferred all that and then tried to bring it back again. Like, okay, so this is what we did. Like this is what you guys did. Okay, so now let's apply it. But um, yeah, I'm curious what the admin take would be on that. Well, I do know some admin listen to this podcast, so uh, I'll yeah, see Paul what Rudahauser. they say. Yeah, Paul what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> and, be a special guest. Right, special guest next time. <laughs> and uh, um, I can say this, though. Michael McDowell, we had admin at a day where Michael McDowell was here and he did something like that. And he talked about that. And I think some of the coaches kind of looked over at the admin to see what they were going to, how their reaction is. I hope that this podcast and other types of professional development also help admin see what we, what we're talking about and why I think it's meaningful for us to find strategic places for students to, um, to be able to think and then grasp what we're having them be successful on so hopefully you know um all right we've talked for quite a long time now that i'm looking at my clock here so i think it's time for us to wrap this up if that's okay we're looking we're at the end folks we have one more session we're looking at chapter 14 and 15 next time we're finally going to look at how we grade students and how this how do we grade kids in a thinking classroom thank you all of you for being here with me today and we will see you next time 